0: Good to see everybody here again tonight. Tonight, we're going to be in uh, verse 8 of Matthew chapter 5. We're just continuing to go through the Beatitudes, and we're almost done with them. Uh, I did want to share something. The reason I picked hymn number 27, number one, I know that one because we sang it so much when I was growing up. But several years ago, when my sister was living over in Africa, she was working with Jeff and Sherry Hostetter. And she got married to a fellow over there, and my mother and I went over there uh, for the wedding. And the Sunday morning I was able to preach there in Africa, and the folks from Togo, which is the neighboring country, come in, and there's this fellow named Mr. KK, a wonderful, absolute wonderful fella. and that's his favorite song. So every time I hear that song, I hear Mr. KK singing that song and just singing it like he meant it. So that's why I picked that song. I, I, number one, I love it, but every time I hear it, I can hear just Mr. KK with this smile on his face just singing that song at the top of his lungs, so I, I mm. love that one. So thank you all for letting me pick that one tonight. All right, I'm going to go ahead and just read through the Beatitudes again, and then we're going to go back and look at verse 8, which is where we are tonight. But starting back in verse 3, and remember this is Jesus. They're up on the, the, the mountain, the crowds have come around, so you have the ones that are following Him, the disciples, the ones who are intent on listening to Him. You have the ones kind of on the outside that are curious, wanting to see what's going on. And don't forget that there's always this group of people on the outskirts, the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And a lot of the things Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, He wants His disciples to really grasp it. He wants the other people to understand, but sometimes He's speaking to these Pharisees. And tonight is one of the ones where it would have been especially interesting to see how the Pharisees respond to it. Uh, but we're going to get to that in just a minute. It starts out, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And I'm starting to sound like a broken record, but it's just important to go back to that word blessed. Some translations say happy. But the idea of being blessed is the idea that you are fortunate. Uh, Or the idea that when people look at you in whatever situation you are, you are to be envied. Uh, Your situation is something that people should strive to be. But the idea is that you are fortunate because of these things. And tonight it says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. So the idea is, number one, what does it mean to be pure in heart? And number two, what does it mean when it says they will see God? And if you remember, I said, if you look at the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That's a present tense thing. That's the the start of becoming a Christian. That's the start of becoming part of the kingdom. And that's something you experience right here and right now. Now, we still have to wait for the kingdom to be fulfilled, but you, you, you join the kingdom when you put your faith and trust in Christ and you're baptized into Him. And then the last one, those who are persecuted, it says the kingdom of heaven is theirs, present tense. And all the rest of these are future tense, although, as I said, in all of these, these lessons, you get glimpses and tastes of these things while we're here on earth. So what does it mean when Jesus says, blessed are, f- how fortunate are the ones who are pure in heart, for they will see God. The idea of being pure in heart is an idea of moral uprightness. It's got to do with your attitudes. It's got to do with the content of your heart. And it's not just about ritual cleanliness. So keep in mind those Pharisees and those religious leaders, those that the teachers of the law, they're on the outskirts and they're hearing Jesus say these kind of things. Jesus makes a point, and I believe this is consistent all through Scripture, even in the Old Testament, God was more concerned about your attitude. He was more concerned about the way you thought and the way you lived. Now, he gave all those rules, and he gave all those laws and all those rituals, so there was a purpose for them, and he expected them to be obeyed. But especially when you get to the prophets, and especially in the minor prophets, they were going through the motions. They were doing the sacrifices, and they were doing all these things, and the prophet said, God doesn't necessarily care about your sacrifices if the content of your heart is terrible. And by the time Jesus comes along, you have these Pharisees and religious leaders. And Jesus is most critical of these people out of everybody you see him dealing with in Scripture. And I can't help but think that they are listening. And Jesus is speaking directly to some of them because he knows the way they think. And he knows the way they live. And the idea that there is a difference between outward cleanliness. And Jesus is not saying that's not important. What he's saying is God is more concerned about the inside. But first I want to tackle the what does it mean when it says they will see God. If you go back and read in the Old Testament, there are a couple of instances. I'm not going to read all of them, but in Exodus 33:20, 20, you have this conversation with God and Moses. And Moses says, I want to see you. And, and God says, you cannot see my face and live. He's like, I am holy and I am righteous. And because you're not, you can't look on me or else you'll die. Now, he gave Moses a glimpse. He hid him in the cleft of the rock, and as God passed by, he could get a glimpse as God moved. And Moses had these conversations with God up on Sinai, and God's glory covered Moses, but he couldn't actually look at God in the face. He couldn't look him eye to eye like you can one another. In fact, the last two humans that were able to do that were Adam and Eve up until they fell So I don't know that Jesus is necessarily saying we will see Father God face to face right here and right now. If you remember in Isaiah 6, Isaiah 6 is an interesting and wonderful chapter. It starts out in the year King Uzziah died. Isaiah is transported to the very throne room of God. And once Isaiah realizes what's going on there in verse 5, it says he falls to the ground and says, Woe is me. For I'm a man of unclean lips, I'm from unclean people, and I have seen the King and the Lord, and surely I'm going to die. He understood that he was not supposed to be there, but God had given him this glimpse. So I don't necessarily believe Jesus is saying that you will see Father God face to face here in this life. Although we do know that later on Jesus said that if you have seen Him, you have seen the Father because the Father is revealed through Christ. What Jesus is talking about is seeing God as having this intimate fellowship with God. There are three guys I'm going to point out, and there's actually quite a few of them, but there's three specifically in the Old Testament where Scripture says that they walked with God or had this deep, intense fellowship, and they were in God's presence. And the first one's a guy named Enoch in Genesis 5. Interesting guy. If you ask me how I want to die, I say I want to go out like Enoch. It said he walked with God, and he was no more. And the writer of Hebrews basically said that Enoch was so righteous, which doesn't mean he was perfect, he was a human, but he was so in tune to the Father that God snatched him up and took him away from this world without him dying. He walked with God. In Genesis 6, it talks about Noah being so righteous and having this relationship with God that God singled him and his family out saying, you're the only ones that I'm going to... Let's survive as I destroy the world. So he had this idea of walking with God and having this intimate fellowship. And then you see in Genesis 17, a guy named Abram, who later became Abraham, had a special relationship with God. And the writer of Hebrews talks about this relationship. He was actually called God's friend. These are people that, if I were to put it in quotation marks, saw God because they experienced Him and had an intimate relationship and fellowship With him. And that's what Jesus is saying God wants for each and every one of us. If you have your Bibles there, turn over to Psalm 27. We're going to look at a couple of Psalms just a minute because I believe this was always God's intent for us. God created us to live in harmony and live in perfect unity with His creation and with Him, and then we broke it. You remember, before Adam and Eve sinned, God would come down and walk in the garden with them and experience the relationship with them, and then sin broke it. And ever since then, God has been doing all of these things that are recorded in Scriptures to bring us back. But in Psalm 27, look at verse 1, and this is King David writing. A guy whose Scripture says was a man after God's own heart. Now, once again, he was not perfect. He was a sinner. But David says, I have asked one thing from the Lord. It is what I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the Lord and seeking Him in His temple. For He will conceal me in His shelter in the day of adversity. He will hide me under the cover of His tent. He will set me high on a rock. Then my head will be high above my enemies around me. I will offer sacrifices in His tent with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Lord, hear my voice when I call. Be gracious to me and answer me. My heart says this about you. Seek his face. Lord, I will seek your face. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not leave me or abandon me, God of my salvation. Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord cares for me. David desired an intimate, personal knowledge of God. And the language he uses is that, Lord, let me see you. And David understood that as a sinful man, he could not look on God. He's obviously using poetic language, but he says, Lord, I want to experience that fellowship. I want to be in your presence. That is the one thing I desire more than anything else is to walk with you, like Enoch and Noah and Abram. And it's interesting because King David writes another psalm. If you flip back just a couple to Psalm 24, David has written this song about the king of glory. And it begins verse verse 1, it says, The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belong to the Lord, Yahweh. For He laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. And then David asks a question. And this is the question, how do you get that personal, intimate fellowship? How do you dwell in God's presence here and now? And we understand that's through the Holy Spirit. But more importantly, how can I be assured that one day when Christ returns, I will actually see God face to face? And David puts it like this, "...who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false, and who has not sworn deceitfully, he will receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Such is the generation of those who inquire of Him." who seek the face of the God of Jacob. David says that if you truly want to see God, if you are seeking God, if you want to have that fellowship, then you have to have clean hands and a pure heart. Your attitude matters. Notice he says clean hands. That means you're not involved in doing things that you're not supposed to do. That's that outward righteousness. Keeping the rules, keeping the laws, keeping the commandments, but you also have to have a pure heart. Your motivations have to be pure. You have to have the right attitude. So let us go back to Matthew 5 there. Keeping in mind, it's well established at this point what God requires of us. If you want to be in God's presence, if you want to see God, number one, you need to follow His commands. You need to obey Him. And number two, you need to have the right attitude. You need to have a pure heart. Now imagine those Pharisees on the outskirts listening to this. I can imagine his disciples are excited. They're sitting there soaking all this up, learning how they can get closer to God. The ones who are there that are curious, they're listening. And perhaps their ears are perked up. They're hearing something a little bit different than what they've been taught. But right behind them are those Pharisees and teachers of the law and the religious leaders. And I can imagine them scowling and frowning. What is he talking about? What is he getting at? I mean, this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry on earth, and he's already making enemies because he's bucking the traditions and the systems that they have put in place. The Pharisees stressed that the law and the ceremonial purity were of utmost importance. They were the keepers of the law. They were the ones that made sure you didn't mess up. And boy, they made sure you didn't mess up you mess up in even the slightest little detail, they would disfellowship you. You couldn't attend synagogue. You couldn't go to the temple. You couldn't worship God. If you didn't meet the rules exactly the way they said you had to, they were concerned about this outward righteousness and not too terribly concerned about the things they thought and the things that were in their hearts. Matthew 23 has a very interesting exchange with Jesus and these Pharisees. And we're not going to read the whole thing, but this is a section, there are seven woes in here, W-O-E, these woes, where Jesus is addressing these religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus actually tells them there in Matthew 23, if you're looking, it says, they're seated in the chair of Moses. They are the keepers of the law. Remember, Moses is the one that God sent the law through. It was actually through angels, but it was delivered to Moses. He was considered the one who delivered the law to the people. And the Pharisees considered themselves his heirs. They were the ones that kept and guarded and protected God's law. In fact, they protected it so much, they added more to it. They didn't think the Ten Commandments were enough, so they had all these other rules and commands to make sure we understood. And Jesus actually says you need to respect and honor them because they are in the place of authority. But then as he goes through this chapter, and I said, we're not going to read all this, but it's really interesting because over and over again, he uses terms like hypocrites. You guys are fake. You're actors. You're pretending like you're holy and righteous. And you may look that way on the outside, but it's just a costume. It's just a mask that you're wearing. The verses I want to look at begin there in verse 25 says, woe to you. Now, if you're wishing woe on somebody, that's not good. It's not a good thing. You're basically telling them, get ready. Doom is coming on you. You're getting ready to experience something bad. So he says, woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish... And that was actually one of the little regulations that were very strict regulations about how you clean your dishes, how you wash your clothes. They stemmed from the law, but these guys had written even more to the point that it was a burden. In fact, Jesus actually says that earlier on. He said, instead of helping you guys follow the law, they add even more to your burden and make it impossible. He's like, you're so worried about making sure that your dishes are clean. But it says, inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside of it may become clean. I like dishwashers, and sometimes I don't like dishwashers. You ever gone and opened your dishwasher and pulled out a cup, thinking it's clean, getting ready to drink from it? You turn it over and you look down and you're like, ugh. And you have to go back and rewash it. Jesus is saying and that's the way these people are spiritually. If you take them out and look at them, they look like they've got everything figured out. They look like they got got it going on. But if you really examine their motives, you really examine the things that they say and the things that they do when no one is looking, he said inside they're filthy. He's like, clean the inside first and then worry about the outside. Get your attitude right with God and then you can worry about all this other stuff. And then verse 27, woe to you, there it is again, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. I think we miss some of the punch. We can't really hear. Sorry about that. I don't know who that is calling. <laughs> Thought I had it cut off. We read these as words on the page, but Jesus is having an intense conversation with people that hate him. You don't crucify somebody because he bothers you. Jesus is condemning them with authority. And these are the religious leaders. These are the ones that everybody looked to. These are the ones holding everybody accountable. And Jesus looks at him and says, you're a bunch of fakes and you're a bunch of phonies. You're a bunch of hypocrites. And if you think the dirty cup, the clean cup on the outside and the dirt on the inside is intense, look what he says. He's like, you're whitewashed tombs which appear beautiful on the inside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and carry every kind of impurity. In the same way on the outside you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. One of the laws and one of the rules as a Jew was you didn't touch dead things. You didn't step on graves. You didn't do that stuff. So Jesus is not picking these things out willy-nilly. He addresses dirty dishes because that was an issue. That was actually a command and a rule that they followed. And they would hold people to it. And they especially follow this one about don't touch dead things. That made you unclean. That means you couldn't go worship. There was a whole set set of rituals you had to go through if you touched a dead body. And Jesus says you have gone through the trouble of painting the outside of this tomb to make it nice and pretty. But inside you're dead and full of disease. He's like, you look righteous on the outside. People look at you and think you have it all together. And you act that way. And you're pretending that you have it all together so people will respect you and people will look up to you. But you're fake, you're phony, and inside you are dead. I don't know about you, but that would offend me. They're offended. And Jesus doesn't care because... Once again, Jesus is trying to point out the fact that God is more concerned about what is inside. So the idea of purity. The Pharisees thought they would be first in line. They thought they would be the ones closest to God. They would sit in the seats of honor. And Jesus is basically telling them, if you don't get things straight, you're going to miss it. You're not going to see Scripture makes it very clear that if you want to see God, if you want to ascend the hill of the Lord, you need to get yourself straight. You need to get your life right. And you guys pretend like you do, but you don't. You have to have pure hearts. The word pure, the Greek word is is katharos. It's where we get the word catheter from. To catheterize something. And it literally means to be clean or pure. And there's three levels to this word. The idea of being physically cleaned or purified, And typically it's by fire. You would purify something by putting it into the fire. Metals. Or the idea, and Jesus uses this when he talks about the vines and the branches. The idea of pruning something and cutting off all the dead stuff. That's what that word pure means. is to be put into the fire and having all the impurities burned off. Or to have them snipped away. And there's also the idea of being Levitically pure or ceremonially pure, following the laws, following the rituals, but most importantly it was the idea of being ethically pure, free from sin, blameless. You see that word used a lot of the heroes of the faith. They were blameless. doesn't mean they were perfect, but it means they lived their life the way they were supposed to. And that's that word to be pure, blameless, free from guilt. And the Greek word for heart is kardeia, so it should sound familiar, cardio. Anytime you see something with cardia on the front of it, you know you're talking about the heart. And it can mean two different things in Greek. The one literally means the organ in your body, the muscle in your body, the heart. But oftentimes, and like Jesus is saying here, it's the spiritual center of your life. When it talks about being pure of heart, it means the source of your thoughts, your desires, your purpose, Your will is supposed to be singularly focused on Christ, singularly focused on God. No hypocrisy, no deceit, no hidden motives. To be transparent and uncompromising, it means it's having the desire to please God in everything we do. And it has to be intentional. Now, we get help from the Holy Spirit we can't do it without the Holy Spirit. That's why God left the Holy Spirit here with us when Jesus returned. But it has to be intentional. It's not something that just happens. You don't just wake up one day and stumble into being pure in heart. got a couple of more scriptures we want to look at as we finish up. Turn to 1 John. It's funny. I don't think it's a coincidence, but it's funny how certain scriptures just pop up because I've used this one for the third time today in 1 John. In 1 John, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 1, it says, This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you, God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in Him. If we say, if those of us who are Christians, those of us who are believers, say we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The idea of walking in darkness and walking in light is a conscious choice. You are choosing to live your life a certain way. And John makes it very clear. If we claim to be believers and continue to walk in darkness, walk in the ways of the world, deliberately sin, then we are liars. We are hypocrites. Staying in 1 John in chapter 3. John's talking about being children of God. Verse 7 says, Children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for the purpose, for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him. He is not able to sin because he has been born of God. Now, it's important. John is not saying that we become perfect or stop sinning. He says we stop deliberately living a sinful lifestyle. There is a difference. Those of us who have been forgiven and justified, we still stumble sometimes. We still make mistakes. John is not saying once you become a Christian, you're perfect. That's just not true but we will stop intentionally sinning when we know it is a sin. And then the last passage I want to look at real quick there is in 3rd John, just a couple of books over. 3rd John Look at verse 11. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. And once again, that doesn't mean if you sin and make a mistake, all of a sudden you're cut off. Because we live in grace and mercy when we're baptized into Christ. But what John is saying is when we intentionally Purposefully continue to sin and continue to walk in darkness, we don't know God. Hebrews 12 14 says, Make every effort to live holy, righteous lives. That's what God has called us from. Psalm 51, King David says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and wipe out my sins. So it starts with God. He justifies us. When we put our faith in Christ, when we're baptized in Him, we're forgiven and our sins are wiped away, but then we consciously choose to follow Jesus. We consciously choose to walk in the light. We put aside all of the old ways of thinking, all the old ways of living. Paul says we kill that old person, and we stop living like that. And we intentionally walk in the light. And the truth is, and this is how we'll close, sometimes we stumble. Sometimes we make mistakes. We are not perfect. But one of the things God's Spirit does when it lives inside of us, lives inside of us, is when we stumble, it convicts us. It says, hey, don't do that again. It shows us where we sin. And then it gives us the power and the strength to overcome it and to get up and keep walking. So being pure in heart, that is something that is attainable right here and right now. It means choosing to put your faith and trust in Christ and choosing to live in such a way that brings glory and honor to Him. And the promise is is that we will see God. Now we experience glimpses of it here on earth. By being part of His church, we see God bless us and see God do things. And we have a relationship with Him because His Spirit lives within us. But like I said, with the exception of the first and last of the Beatitudes, the promise has an eternal fulfillment. And here it is in Revelation 22. When Jesus comes back in Revelation 22, after the wicked had been taken away and we were there, new earth, new creation with God, it says, Then He showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. We're going back to Eden The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will worship Him. And verse 4, this is the best part. Remember, Adam and Eve walked with God and they actually saw Him. And then when they sinned, that was cut off. No one since then has seen God face to face. It says, they will see His face. I don't know about you. He says his name will be on their foreheads. We'll be in the presence of Almighty God. I can remember being a kid and wondering what God looked like. You see all these pictures and you see the old guy on the throne and the beard. He looked kind of like Santa Claus or Father Time. And the truth is, is we just don't know. But Revelation says we will see God. And the relationship that was broken will be restored. I don't know about you, but I'm excited about that. I can't wait. But this is the way we'll close. If you want that promise to apply to you, you've got to believe. You've got to put your faith and trust in Christ. You have to obey Scripture and be baptized into His name. But you have to walk in the light. You have to intentionally make your heart pure, seeking the things of God, staying in His Word, worshiping with one another, praying, and making the effort. And God has promised He'll go with us every day step of the way, and then one day we'll see Him. We'll be in His presence and for all eternity we'll be able to look on the face of our Savior. Let's pray.